Our scripture reader confessed before she got up to read that gospel passage that she doesn't like this passage. (laughs) And she was hopeful that there would be some good news found within it. And I told her, I agree. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Author Anne Lamott shares a story about her dear friend Sue. Their earthly journey as friends lasted little more than a year, for at the time they met, Sue, as Anne writes, had the cancer of the everything. They connected easily and deeply when they met over their faith, their mutual love of laughter, and their mutual understanding of a God who includes everything and everyone, both here on earth and in heaven. They wasted no time in nurturing the gift of their friendship because there was no time to lose. Less than a year after they met, Sue called to tell Anne that she knew she was dying. And Anne writes that she realized she only had one gift she could offer Sue. And that was to just listen. So Anne did. She listened to Sue, to her fear, to her spirit, to her. And as she listened on the phone that day, Anne heard Sue move from being crushed to defiant. Sue told her, I have what everyone wants, but that no one would be willing to pay for. Anne asked her, what do you have, Sue? She said, the two most important things. I got forced into loving myself, and I'm not afraid of dying anymore. Sue had no fear of death as she came on her journey to understand her belovedness by God, her creator. And with no fear of death, she had no fear of truly living The truths of Sue's story are themes that we can find in our gospel message today from Matthew. This parable of Jesus is often called the parable of the talents or the parable of the valuable coins, since the word talent is from the Greek word meaning a large sum of money. It's also been titled the story about investing. All fitting titles. But it seems an equally, if not more, fitting title could be The Parable of the Fearful Servant, with a subtitle, A Story About the Fear of Dying and the Fear of Living. The master in this parable is planning to take a long trip. And the first of his two servants, he gives five and two talents worth of money, respectively. As the master departs, the two waste no time in spending that money to gain. They invest it, they take risks, they are bold with the gift they've been given. Their stories are identical, even some of the dialogue is word for word the same for those first two. So it's the third servant that really grabs our attention in this parable. The story for him is unique. His action is unique, the dialogue is unique, and the outcome is unique. 
The servant we discovered did not do what his fellows did. He did not go trade or invest or spend his talent wisely in order to gain more. He took a shovel, he dug a hole, and he buried it. When the master returns after his long journey, the first two servants are praised and rewarded for their wise and bold handling, their risk-taking with what the master entrusted to them. And with joy, the master invites them to enter into his joy and to come and celebrate with him. But the third servant explains to the master how he knew he was a harsh businessman and he was afraid of him. So he decided to take the most cautious route available to him. The safest way to keep any possession during that time in the ancient world was to bury it in the ground. Not at all like our hiding it under a mattress today. Nervously and perhaps proudly, the servant returns to his master the one talent entrusted to him. Every bit of it. Well, the master is furious. And not only does he take away the talent, but banishes the servant to the outer darkness. Matthew's readers, Matthew's audience, would have understood that the third servant's action was the most cautious and the surest way to secure that money. So they would have been startled by this parable and its outcome. And that's what parables are meant to do, to wake us up. They disrupt our usual way of thinking, or think if we think we know something, they tell us to look a little closer. The punishment given that servant was unexpected and it seemed extreme. It may help to consider Jesus' own story at the time he is telling this parable. He's recently left his safe and quiet Galilee and traveled to the capital city of Jerusalem. He arrives in the religious authorities as he begins to teach already label him as someone who threatens the status quo. He threatens their own power and their agenda. And the Romans, too, regard him as a disturber of the peace. And at the time Jesus is telling this parable, he's just two days away from being betrayed, arrested, humiliated, and killed. Jesus is close to his own outer darkness, and it's painful. As we recall his words on the cross, My God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a good idea to understand Matthew, the author's agenda, with his audience. There's a sense of urgency in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has left the earth, and these people are living in the time in between when Jesus left and his promised return. But it has been some time. And Matthew needs to encourage the early church on how they are called to live. That they are to take seriously the responsibility entrusted to them as followers of Jesus. They are the ones sent into the world to tell the good news of God's love and to help further God's realm. And there are so many people still living in outer darkness of fear that there is no time for cautious living no time to play it safe, to stick close to home, to be silent with their mouths. There's no time to bury 
the good graces and gifts of God's abundance in the ground. Rather, they are to let their Christ light shine because the world needs to be unburied from its fear and its loss. When we bury our portion of God's grace and provision, we bury ourselves and we bury the offering of God's joy. We may look at our own lives and wonder, what can we do with what we have? We may decide that we don't have many abilities that might work to further God's realm, or that we're such a small part of this big universe, how could it matter? Or am I just really not enough? The parable tells us the master gave to each according to his ability. The master honored right where they were, without judgment. A talent, this sum of money, is huge. To be more precise, it's equal to wages for more than 15 years of labor. So this master is extravagant in generosity. Even one talent was an enormous sum of money. The master knew just what each servant would be able to handle and lavished them with gifts of this talent. Friends, we are born with enough in God's eyes. We are born with enough ability to carry out our unique call with our unique talents, our time, our treasure, as we serve together with our common calling to further God's realm. Whether we have a tiny teacup or a 64-ounce mug from UDF, the promise of the scriptures is that God's grace will overflow our cup always. So we have nothing to fear. As the Apostle Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you, says the Lord, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In the last days of Sue's life, Anne Lamott's friend. She and Anne took a ski trip to the mountains. By this time, Sue's body had withered from the cancer. She was 110 pounds on a 5'9 frame. On her ski, she was wobbly and trembling. And other skiers turned to stare at her because she was so yellow, so jaundiced, and so thin. Sue had not been skiing for years. And Lamott describes the scene that Sue, overly gingerly at first, the air was so thin with cancer in her lungs it was difficult to adjust. But then Sue pushed hard down on her poles and started to sail down the mountain. At some point she stopped to turn around to look for Anne, who had fallen right away, which Anne did a lot. Sue waited for Anne to get back up and to meet her down the mountain. And when Anne reached Sue, Sue taught her one of the most important things, and that was how to fall better. Sue said to her, you're so afraid of falling that it's keeping you from skiing as well as you could. It's keeping you from the joy. So each time Anne fell, Sue taught her how to get back up. And once convinced that Anne could do so on her own and do so safely, Sue tore off down the slope. 
skiing boldly, truly alive. No fear of the death that was so near to her. And as she tore off down that slope, she taught courage to those around her, first to Anne and to those who witnessed her so wobbly. Sue did not bury anything about her life. St. Ignatius Loyola teaches in what we know as Ignatian spirituality to ask the question as disciples, what ought I do for Christ? I have a spiritual director here in Cincinnati that I see regularly. And every time she prays with me, she also prays that, that God would show me what ought I do? What is my work to do today for Christ? And Ignatius teaches we are not to be shy about this seeking an answer in any way, but we are to boldly ask God, what do you want for me, God? Show me the way. And whatever we hear when obstacles arise to that path, we are to practice the principle of doing the opposite. If you don't feel like praying, pray more. If you're drawn to riches and accumulating wealth, give some of your money away. If you dislike or are annoyed by someone, spend more time with them. If you're afraid of falling while skiing, keep skiing anyway, and you'll learn how to get up, and probably you will fall less often. St. Ignatius wasn't much to sit around and wait for things to happen. As he told his fellow Jesuits so long ago, no commonplace achievement will satisfy the great obligation you have of excelling. He preached a holy boldness as our calling as disciples of Christ. I heard a story this week that spoke to me of this holy boldness. Braxton Winston was among those arrested during the protests of the police shooting and death of Keith Lamar Scott in Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the shootings of a black male that rocked our nation last year. Horrified by the event, Winston joined the protests outside of Scott's apartment. Winston was pictured in a photo you may have seen because it did go viral. He had removed his shirt to protect himself or try to from the the great cloud of tear gas that the police had shot into the crowd. And he stood with his shirt off, and unable to speak because of the tear gas, he stood facing the armed riot police with his fist in the air. All the words he needed in that moment. Of the police who were making arrests, Winston knew some of them and vice versa. He was arrested five days later for another protest where he carried a gas mask, which was a violation of the law. And the police officer whom he knew who was making arrests said to him, if you really want to make a change, run for office. These words worked on him while he was in jail, and when he was released, he felt a calling to make a change. And he did run for office on a platform of civil rights and social justice, promising to work for positive change 
for everyone in his community. Braxton Winston, at 34 years old, a husband, a father of three, ran for the City Council of Charlotte and was last week voted into office, where he hopes to work for necessary reform from the inside out. Holy boldness. It's hard not to listen to the news and see ways in our own community where we as Christ's disciples are called to live without fear and holy boldness and not to bury our own gifts and talent and grace. There are stories in the news now of professing Christians who have histories unearthed or allegations against them of taking advantage of those who are weaker, of sexual harassment and even abuse. The very ones Jesus calls us to walk alongside of, the least of these, are the ones we're hearing about in the news who have suffered under those with more power and authority. As Christ followers, how are we to respond? Will we remain silent? Or will we pray for boldness to speak out? trusting that what God told the prophet Jeremiah, our faith ancestor, God said, Do not be afraid, Jeremiah, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And then, Jeremiah writes, The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. This past week in Cincinnati, author Chuck Collins was here having conversations with people in our community and faith communities about the economics of compassion, about how to create shared prosperity informed by his own faith. He wrote a book called Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. It's his story as a one percenter. Chuck Collins is a great grandson of the Oscar Mayer. Oscar Mayer. He was born into enough money to never have to work a day in his life. And after college and getting his first job in his 20s, he was working alongside and for people who did not have what he had. He knew he had earned nothing that was given to him, but he was born into privilege. He was working with people who were not and who had to work more than one job to even to try to make ends meet. And he understood through perhaps what he would call a call from God that if he kept his money, he would never be able to understand and truly work for the change that he knew needed to happen in our nation, in our economic system. He shares about in the last 40 years the gains that our nation has, has acquired have not gone to the 1%, but only to one-tenth of the 1%, while the bottom half of our country's wage earners have seen flat or even falling wages. He shares that the median wealth of whites is 13 times that of blacks. The rules that we live with currently clearly reward asset owners at the expense of most who have to work sometimes three jobs to earn a living. I was convicted I'm part of this system. 
Will I take a shovel and bury my voice or the abilities that God has given me? The privilege that God has entrusted me to use wisely. We know how to create shared prosperity. And Jesus boldly shows us how through his life of taking the downward way and walking alongside the least and building community, loving community that way. How will we respond with holy boldness? Matthew's agenda right here and right now as God's children is that it does matter how and that we respond and that it's urgent because people are in darkness. Psalm 90 that we read reminds us that our life is so brief. We're like a blade of grass that is alive in the morning and withers by night. There's little time to act boldly to help the world out of outer darkness. We're about to enter a season of waiting and hopeful watching, the season of Advent, as we wait for the promised return of the Christ, the Messiah. And Matthew begins his gospel claiming that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now Matthew sends us out near the end of his gospel with the same message. In Matthew 28, the last chapter, Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go and tell all the world about the good news of God's love, forgiveness, peace, and justice. And remember, Jesus said, as Emmanuel, I am with you to the end of the age. Friends, it's not burying ourselves in any way or any part of our life, but in holy boldness, our living will lead us into the joy of our God who says, come and celebrate with me. May we do that today. Thanks be to God. Amen.